Uh, today we're in Galatians. We're going to finish up the book of Galatians. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to be doing verses 9 to the end, 9 through 18 in Galatians 6. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? Galatians 6 from verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand? It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So the, the verse that just preceded this, the one we ended with last week, talked about sowing and reaping. Those who sow to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Those who sow to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life. And so um, we saw the description of the flesh and the Spirit in chapter 5, 19 through uh, 23, he, where he delineated what the, what the difference is, what they look like. And so now he begins verse 9 saying, And let us not grow weary doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So don't give up doing, walking in those fruits of the Spirit. Don't give up walking with Christ. Don't give up striving for, to go forward in your spiritual life with Jesus. It's a struggle. He told us it was a battle. He told us the battle will continue all through this life. But we're not to give up because eventually we will reap. Um, to live in those works of the flesh listed in chapter 5, 19 to 21 means, he said, that you'll never see the kingdom of God. And if you don't see the kingdom, then you face the consequences of that corruption that he talked about. We see examples of this in the news and in our daily lives. Those who live for the physical realm and just for selfish interests may have some enjoyment here and there, but they're spiritually empty without knowing the Messiah. There's a gnawing emptiness within and it often leads to depression, to drug abuse. Sometimes it even leads to suicide. You know, and when I meet those, sometimes I counsel people who are, who are suicidal and, and I counsel them, man, if you're gonna throw your life away, throw it into the hands of Jesus and see what he can do with your life. Perhaps saddest of all are those who have no hope and think that death is the end and, 
and that they won't face judgment for rejecting the mercy and grace of God, only to find out it's the beginning of eternity. If you want good things to come into your life from God and others, sow goodness into their lives. And when the time is right, you will reap, probably when you need it the most. It can become wearisome to give and give and give, but look to the Lord and let him renew your strength. Be sure that it's not your strength, but that of the Lord in you. The fuel for the fire in your soul comes from meeting with Jesus in the word and prayer. When we try to do it on our own, we will burn out. But if we rely on the Lord's strength and his life in us and let our souls be renewed and refreshed in prayer and in the word, then that fire keeps burning. That's why the Apostle Paul told Timothy, his disciple, fan into flame the gift of God within you. And we do that by being in God's word and in prayer. You can think of it as investing. You know, when I first uh, heard this concept and started to see it in God's word, I thought something about that doesn't seem right because God's done so much for us. How can we think that we can do something and receive something back? But Jesus told us to lay up our treasure in heaven and not on the earth. Numerous times in scripture, we're told that God will repay us for the sacrifices we make for him. A reward is totally unnecessary. He's done so much for us that we should gladly give ourselves in service to him. But the promise of repayment is still there all over scripture. See the current blessing, first of all, in the recipient's appreciation and in the smile on Jesus' face that you did his will. And know that the greater reaping is yet to come because God is just and he repays. We will go to our heavenly reward as our sister Joan Rollins did last week and our brother Tony did a few weeks before if we do not give up. Anyone can become weary continually expressing those fruits of the Spirit and need rest, especially when we labor in our own strength. But we need to take time to refuel, to get in the Word and prayer. We need to be looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is now set down at the right hand of God. Remember the joy set before us being face-to-face -face with Jesus. Anyone can become weary, but if we rely on him, he will. He promises to renew our strength. Remember what it took for Israel to take the promised land and the cost of giving up before it was completed. If you recall, they didn't quite take all the territories, and as a result, those people that remained in the land became, as God said in his word, thorns in their side. And, and their idols tempted them to be drawn away from the God of Israel. Perseverance is the lesson that we should take from their story. This instruction is the opposite of the prosperity gospel that promises to get rich now by giving. God's not saying you do something and you're going to get it back now in this life. Sometimes that happens, but the great reward is in eternity. 
It's telling us to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, as Paul told Timothy. We seek a heavenly city that has foundations. We're seeking more than the Flatlanders can imagine as they try to satisfy themselves with the works of the flesh. Verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Since the law of sowing and reaping is true, use every opportunity God sets before us to do good to all people, but especially to those in the body of Christ. Practice your generosity with God's people first, and then reach out to those around you, to those you meet. The church is our spiritual family, so we should naturally be first concerned for their needs, both physical and spiritual. It's where we find identity and security, receive nurture and nourishment, get encouragement and support, benefit from teaching and training, modeling and mentoring, discipline and discipleship. The local church is our spiritual home, and those who gather week by week are, biblically speaking, our true brothers and sisters. And of course, Scripture tells us we are to meet the needs of our own flesh and blood family as well. In fact, Paul says, if we don't, we're worse than an infidel. Paul prioritizes our giving to the family of faith because it's the bride of Christ. Jesus is the head of this body. It is the residence of the Holy Spirit. It's the temple in the world today. Just as the Jews were to bring all their tithes into the storehouse, which is the temple today, so we bring our offerings at the leading of the Spirit into the household of faith. The household will become the new Jerusalem. Jesus purchased us with his own blood. I remember uh, the story about a pastor who uh, he often flew to speak at different destinations around the world, different churches and ministries. Uh, and when he would get in the plane, he'd sit down and people, you know, eventually your conversation gets around to, what do you do for a living? You know, what's your job? It's just normal conversation to find out where you can connect. And he noticed that when he would say, well, uh, I'm a pastor or I'm a preacher or that all of a sudden the conversation would end. Right? The headphones come on and they're looking out the window, right? So he would answer, he started learning to answer that he worked for a worldwide organization that has branches in almost every country. It's an organization that helps people find their purpose and destiny. He's the CEO of a particular branch, but he often goes to speak at other branches around the world. And he would explain that he loves his work because it helps needy people find peace and joy. Um, well, of course, you know, that starts the conversation and they want to know what kind of business is this and it opens an opportunity to share the gospel. He tells them this organization has fantastic benefits. It's one reason he really likes working for it, you know, grace, love, joy, peace, the Holy Spirit. And eventually he shares the gospel. And it's true, we're part of the largest organization in the world today. It's one of the that has the brightest future of any organization, amen? It's the only one worth investing your time and money in because it will outlast all other organizations. 
and their retirement plan is out of this world. <laughs> Amen. But sadly, many people see the church as just an hourly addendum to their weekly routine. They have no interaction with the church, their fellow believers, all week long. They make no effort to build relationships or to learn about their brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe that's because they've been hurt before in a fellowship. Or maybe they just don't want to get close to other people. You know, we, our American spirit is so independent. It, unlike much of the third world, you know, uh, those of you who have lived in the third world for any time, I mean, ask Jory from his mission trip. Uh, in the third world, when you meet somebody on the road, you might end up stopping and talk to them half an hour. I get frustrated in the supermarket when my wife stands there and talks to somebody for 10 minutes. But it, the third world is so different. Relationships are so important. And I think as our culture, in our culture, we need to, to break that, that pattern that we have and, and become truly interested in one another. Really become the body of Christ. Have that godly concern for each other. It's messy at times, for sure, just like any family, but it's often so gloriously fulfilling. Verse 11, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, we don't know, there's a huge debate about what this is talking about, um, but I think the best commentators have come to the conclusion that he picked up an eye disease on one of his missionary trips uh, up, heading up into the Galatian region in Pamphylia. It, the book of Acts tells us that he stopped there, but he didn't preach, which was really unusual. Everywhere he goes, he finds a synagogue and preaches in the synagogue. But for some reason, he went immediately from Pamphylia up further north to Galatia. Um, Historical information tells us that there, at the time, there was a contagious eye disease in the region. And perhaps he didn't preach there because he came down with this disease. Um, there in Galatia, he says that they were so receptive, we saw in chapter 4, verse 15, that they would have taken out their eyes and given them to him if they could have. So it kind of is a hint that maybe that, that's what they're talking about. Perhaps his vision was so damaged he had to write in large letters just so he could see them, you know, as he concluded the letter. Others suggested that this was for emphasis, much the way that we would write in all caps, you know, in a portion of a letter. But a secretary probably wrote the body of the letter. We see that in most of Paul's letters. He mentions his secretary. And now Paul concludes this in his own hand, probably to authenticate that this is from him. Verse 12, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So all through the letter of Galatians, we've been wondering why these people came in and tried to convince these Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised. And Paul went through a lot all through the letter explaining why it was unnecessary for them. Perhaps um, we've gotten finally here to the real point, or at least Paul's conviction of what was behind 
they're urging them to be circumcised. Ecclesiastical statistics. In other words, how many people did I get? How many people, how many converts did I get? When I go back to my friends, I can tell them, you know, when I was in a denomination many, many years ago, I would go to the denominational meeting of pastors. And you meet a new pastor, another pastor that you have, someone you haven't met. And within two minutes, they're asking you, where's your church and how big is it? Because it was almost like there was a pecking order. Is your church over 100? Is it over 1,000? Ooh, if it's over 1,000, you're a big, important person. And it seemed like that's what they're concerned about. They wanted approval from men. To them, religion had devolved into outward rituals rather than an inner relationship of the heart, which is the meaning behind circumcision. In Deuteronomy 10.16, it tells us that it represents the circumcision of the heart, a tender heart towards God. It's an outward sign of something inward. At that time in Israel, in this first century, there was a growing sentiment promoted by the zealots that Jews should not associate with Gentiles unless it was to convert them. So these teachers that came in may have been trying to get the church to blend in with the Jewish community to avoid confrontation with the zealots. Jews would not persecute Christians if they appeared to be Jewish proselytes. In addition, Rome accepted Judaism, the only religion that Rome accepted outside of the traditional uh, worship of the emperor and the Roman and Greek gods. And so compromise in that area would help them avoid persecution from Rome because it would appear that they were Jewish. The minor surgery could have avoided a lot of conflict, but it involved compromising the message of grace. Did Jesus do everything that was necessary for our salvation? Or do, did Gentiles have to obey the law? How easy it is for the church today to do the same thing, to emphasize works instead of the heart transformation. Good works are accepted by the community. So some churches devolve into good work societies. Works can be managed. The Holy Spirit is wild and ever-present. Works don't require taking up your cross. Doing good works earns the applause of people. The Spirit, however, convicts the world of sin, which is very unpopular. Paul taught that the Gentiles were sons of Abraham by faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. And that upset the Jewish community. If you tell a secular person that you're going to heaven because you do good deeds, they're not going to persecute you. But if you tell them Jesus died for us sinners and we all have to repent and believe in what he did for us, that he rose from the grave and conquered death so that we won't go to hell, look out. That wounds our pride. It says we're not good enough for God, which is the truth. It tells us how incapable we are. If we're without the redeeming blood of Christ, it labels us as hopeless sinners under the curse of God. There's nothing in all the world that reveals our true 
wretched condition like the cross. If Jesus had to suffer to that extent for our sins, it reveals how God sees our sinful condition. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Those false teachers didn't keep all the laws. Paul knew that because he was a Pharisee and he knew he, he couldn't keep them. In Romans chapter seven, he talks about the struggle that he had trying to obey the law. The law says don't covet. And when he'd think about not coveting, he'd start coveting something. These people just wanted to be able to tell other Jews, look at all the Gentiles we got to obey Moses. Aren't we special? But if keeping the law could save us, there was no need for the cross. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Our righteousness is all the work of Jesus for us. So how can we boast? You know, it, it's one of the most humbling faiths there is because it, it tells us you can't, he did. Amen. We can declare the wonderful truth that God loved me so much that he gave his only son to pay my sin debt. Because of that wonderful mercy, the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. The world is, is the fallen, ungodly ways of the world system, seeking to please the flesh and boast in accomplishments. It's unloving and, and selfish. We once desperately wanted the world to respect us, but now we see it corrupt and deceptive and the evil it truly is. We nail our old selves to the cross with Jesus. We die with him. And then we're raised with him to newness of life. And that new life, in that new life, and we still battle that old nature, but the spirit helps us walk in victory. Boasting in the cross in that day would be kind of like, uh, you know, we wear a cross around our neck today. It would be like uh, wearing a hangman's noose around your neck. It was an ugly form of torture. But Paul wasn't boasting in the tool of execution, but rather in what Jesus did for him on that cross. For it's there that we see the love of God for the world displayed. We see that God was willing to humbly enter into creation, live a perfect life, take upon himself our sins and the penalty for them. We can look at the cross and say, God loves us that much we can boast in God's great love. If we separate God's love for us from the cross, we forget how unworthy we are and the depths of which his love was willing to go to save us. And that's why it should be the object in which we boast. We focus on, on this on Easter and when we have communion, but it should be our continual boast, what Christ has done. That's what gives us any value. Right? That's, I mean, you, you know, every one of us has gifts. We have skills and talents. We, we do good things for others. But the really, the only thing that's worth boasting in it is God loves me that much. 
that's, that's way beyond anything we can do. That makes our soul of eternal worth. In Galatians, we see that the cross rescues us from the present evil age. Chapter 1, verse 4. The cross unleashes the powerful presence of the Spirit. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. The cross clears the way for Abraham's blessing to come to us. Chapter 3, verse 10 to 14. The cross ushers in the era of adoption and sonship. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. And the cross gives birth to new freedom. Chapter 4, 21 to 5, 1. The cross of Christ enables the presence of God. Oh, that we might learn the vanity of boasting in anything other than the cross that humbles us and saves us. How completely it rules out any other means of being righteous before God. How could we think that we could add to what he did for us? Let us be loyal and loving bondservants of Jesus because of his loving sacrifice for us. We seek only to please him and could care less about the, what, what the world thinks of us. This is the opposite of what those false teachers were trying to say, so concerned about being accepted by others, making a good show. Is the world crucified to you? Does it allure and entice you, or are you done with its attraction and its false promises? Have you found fulfillment in Jesus, whose love is really all we need and all that's worth living for? Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It isn't about whether we did this ritual or didn't do it. Just trying to obey the law doesn't count for anything with God because none of us can keep the whole law. What matters is if we have been born again, if we've received that life from God made possible to us through the cross. If we're not a new creation, we're still part of this fallen world system and we'll be seeking our own glory. The world will be our best friend while trying to use us, but those who are new creations will be seen as enemies by the world. They can't understand why we act and think like we do. They can't see spiritual truth and consider our convictions a hindrance to them from, or from, excuse me, fulfilling their own lusts, what they call in psychology, self-actualizing. There are people in the political realm who are so fearful that Christians will make legal restrictions on their behavior that they'll go to any lengths to stop them, to stop those that have a moral fabric and say what is wrong. We need to have Paul's attitude that the world is crucified to us. Our battle is to stay faithful to our commander, Jesus. Only then will we rescue the souls of those caught up in the trap of this world system. Paul's telling the Galatians that they're caught up in this idea of circumcision, which is meaningless when compared to being a new creation in Christ. We get caught up in so many little petty things when what counts is letting the life of Christ be expressed in our mortal bodies. Or as Paul wrote in chapter five, verse six, 
All that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This verse is Paul's summation statement of the entire letter. While we have difficulty relating to the pressure to be circumcised, to avoid persecution, we certainly feel the pressure to conform to the culture. Ever hear the word Christophobic? The world says we are everything sinful phobic, right? They have all kind of something phobic labels for us, but the problem with the fallen world is that man is Christophobic. Their phobia sometimes makes us wary of expressing our faith, of speaking out. We want to be accepted like these Galatians wanted to be accepted by the Jewish and Roman world. Paul's solution is to be crucified to the world. We must realize that all that counts in God's eyes and in the light of eternity is being a new creation that expresses faith through love. Verse 16, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The word rule here is literally a measuring rod. We measure the life of the church in every age by whether or not it's operating, not just externally, but has that internal life of the spirit. Dead works or a new creation, dead or alive. There's Israel of the flesh, natural born, and there's the Israel of God, those who are born again, both Jew and Gentile. He elaborated on that in chapter four. Paul then gives the benediction of peace and mercy to those who count on the grace that makes us a new creation rather than counting on the law. Jesus is the one who prevails with God. Israel as a nation had failed to demonstrate the goodness of God to the world, but because it could not keep the laws of God, someone needed to come who could keep them all and then could take our sins upon himself. And consider this, I believe God chose them, chose the Jewish nation, chose Israel because they were the most capable of doing what God asks. Of all the, all the cultures on the planet, Jewish people win more thinking of the, the Nobel Prizes per capita than any other nation. God blessed them with an intelligence and a capability. If anyone could keep the laws, it was the Jewish nation. I think that's why he chose them, to show us that none of us can do it, that we need a savior. God is teaching the world that we all need a savior that no one's good enough to stand before God's holiness. Had they sincerely tried to keep the law, they would have been so blessed the world would have seen that God was special and sought after him. But now we see that even the most capable people couldn't do so without a Messiah. It's a lesson of history that no one can come close to living up to God's standard of holiness. The new Israel had to come to be a witness of God's goodness and cause others to desire him. Jesus 
God incarnate, the God who lives in the born-again believers, is the one who makes it possible. The lesson is that without his aid, we cannot be witnesses. Because of his life in us and through the Holy Spirit, we become the Israel of God. In demonstration of the fruits of the Spirit, we are to carry on the call of Israel of old. So how are we doing? Is love, joy, peace, patience, attracting other people to inquire about our God? Or are we living with the same old priorities and the world sees no difference in us? Walk in the spirit, the apostle says, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Rise with Jesus as a new creation and live. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Paul's declaration that his word to them is the final word is verified by the physical suffering he endured for Jesus. There was a lot more to come. Some claim that this uh, is, the, is the word stigmata, that it refers to um, so meditating on the crucifixion of Christ that the wounds of Christ show up on your body. I don't think that's the case. I think here's Paul's talking about the suffering that he endured and the scars that he had on his body. I mean, beaten numerous times, whipped, scourged, stoned, left for dead, days and night in the deep in the ocean, um, snake bit, you name it, Paul went through it. And he had those scars on his physical body to show that he was so in love with Jesus, that he was so surrendered to Jesus that he did not care about the persecution. Something was more vital to him than physical suffering. What did the, the, te the false teachers have to show? Their only mark on their body was the circumcision, trying to fit in and not be persecuted. You can tell who our owner is by the marks. You know, stigmata originally is the Greek word used for the branding of a slave. An owner who had a slave he wanted to keep for his entire life who was special to his household would brand him on the forehead, the owner's name. So Paul was really saying in this, these are the brand marks that declare I'm a slave of Jesus and I love it. He's the best master. The scars of Jesus, because it was his life and Paul that drove him onward to boldly declare the truth of Jesus regardless of the cost to his body. Some of us have scars on our hearts because we've followed Jesus and refused to compromise his word. They too can be a testimony of the faithfulness of Jesus to see his work in us completed and our unwillingness to compromise. Next, next month, um, the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate uh, those who are suffering for Christ right now in the third world, who literally have on their bodies the marks of Christ. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This whole letter is about grace. And it's really got me thinking deeply about 
how wonderful grace is. It started with a greeting of grace in chapter 1, verse 3, explained how they were falling from grace, and it ends with the benediction of grace. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirits to show the love of God, the life of peace, the hope of eternity to a world that's searching for answers. It has to be in us first before we can offer it to the world. We must realize that the grace of God has done all that's necessary for us to be declared, declared free of sin and righteous in God's eyes. That's why we never accept condemnation because Jesus paid it all. We can't add anything to what he did and now we are free to serve our Lord and Savior not out of duty but out of love for the one who gave himself for us. This benediction is to the brothers and sisters, the family of God, through the grace of God. Our lives must be a declaration of that grace. When others wound us, are unfair, slander us, or revile us, we must demonstrate the same grace that we have received. It is Jesus' own grace in us that we extend to others. It's the grace that would help the Galatians and us to persevere to the end, all for the glory of God. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers and sisters. Amen.